Hello, everyone. You're listening to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum focused on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis emanating from the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, what should be done about them? Now, if you want to listen to past episodes, please visit us on www.ppforum.ca or on Twitter at at ppforumca. Today, I'm joined by Bruce Laurie, president of the Ivy Foundation, which is one of Canada's oldest family foundations. It was established in 1947 and has always had a strong environmental bent. Now, if you're just a bit older, Bruce might be seen as the senior statesman of Canada's environmental movement. As it is, he may just have to settle for being among its most influential and entrepreneurial leaders. Now, that's because Bruce knows his stuff, he's expert at identifying the meaningful trend lines, and he is very good at fostering the creation of institutions that support the implementation of those ideas, whether that be carbon pricing or energy efficiency or sustainable finance or new hydrogen-powered energy system. I think uh, one might sum up Bruce's work as being about how you can affect a peaceful and realistic transition to a different economy without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm happy to say that Bruce has also been a supporter and mentor to the Public Policy Forum's Energy Future Forum, which has been bringing people together with such a goal in mind of a realistic and real energy transition. Now, we'll be talking about energy and climate today, especially in light of the growing pressures on the oil and gas industry, most recently from the collapse in price ignited by the Russian-Saudi spat and then the price and demand, the collapse in demand that's flowing from the COVID-19 crisis. And we're also going to talk about the pandemic crisis itself. Bruce has a long interest dating back at least to his PhD dissertation on how public policy practitioners respond to risks like asbestos or mercury poisoning to site two, and then the kind of noise, the static that gets in between scientific evidence and public policy. Uh, Bruce has just written a thoughtful article about how this applies to the current health crisis. So welcome to Policy Speaking, Bruce. Thanks very much, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here, and there are a few things that I enjoy talking more about than public policy. Okay, and uh, there's uh, lots of things to talk about right now, and not all of them in a totally positive light, because we're obviously going through a very rough time. But let's start out with the recent article you published, and you put forward the following question. Given what we know about, and let's fill in the blank, climate change, or mercury poisoning, or asbestos, why do humans not take meaningful action? action sooner? That's your question. So why don't we take it sooner, Bruce? There's, of course, a whole bunch of reasons. And what I found interesting about COVID is that in, in my work on environment, most of these things are, are very protracted timelines. So you've got decades of dealing with things like asbestos or mercury or climate change. And with COVID-19, we have a very, very compressed timeline with lots of information coming to us quickly. But still, you know, what really struck me, and there was just another article out today that I read in the Globe and Mail, just on you know why it seems like everything is a week or two behind when it should have been things like you know travel bans and testing is is a big one so i mean fundamentally people don't like to make change people are comfortable with the status quo so that's like a, a basic human instinct that makes us stick with what we have as opposed to want to change of course with most of these environmental issues like asbestos mercury climate change and also with covid there is an overwhelming sense of needing to protect 
the economy that we have, needing to keep people employed, needing to not harm you know, the profits of big businesses. And so at the end of the day, I would say if there's one thing that really bogs us down, it is the idea that the economy always trumps public health, the economy always trumps environment, and I would argue the economy trumps science, risk, evidence, and otherwise good decision-making. And we saw that with COVID, even around things like the, the delay in stopping travel between Canada and the U.S. Well, you know, certainly we can see that in, in a decision-making, in any kind of straight line, let's say, between the scientific evidence and the public policy, that interests are always going to get in the middle of that, whether those be economic interests or all sorts of other kinds of interests, not in my backyard, whatever those interests might be. But it strikes me in the COVID crisis that there's something different. I mean, as you say, you know, the, the timelines are extremely compressed. But also business, for one, has been saying, you know, let's get along with this. We are shutting down an economy. We're not hanging on to it. And I don't see anyone really advocating that. So doesn't that make this quite different? It makes it different in that I don't think there are, you know, active economic interests lobbying for delays. It's more of an overall sense. And, and you can see it if, if you read the language, even in you know, words that come out of our federal health minister or others, where there's sort of you know, subtle language around not wanting to be seen to be, you know, too intrusive in Canadians' lives, not wanting to be seen to you know, be too disruptive. And that was the kind of language we were seeing early on. And, you know, I really think, you know, Canada, Canada's credit, I think we've done a reasonably good job. You know, we're, as with a lot of things, we're kind of, you know, we're reasonable and the results are middling. And so we're not in Italy or a Spain or a United States, but at the same time, we're not a Taiwan or a Singapore or a South Korea who acted very quickly with the information they had. So I guess what I would say, Ed, is that the overall sense of not wanting to disrupt the economy too much or, or even things, when you think of the economy, thinking around like the use of masks, I think there was a sense that maybe maybe there, there weren't enough masks. I think there, there clearly weren't enough masks. We weren't prepared, for, for example for something like this, even though plans were known to be in place for these things, they just weren't adopted. So there weren't enough masks to go around. So we're kind of like trying to save masks. And then in Ontario, we had testing capacity to test more people. But for some reason, those tests weren't being done. And if there's anything to tie this to you know, a lot of my research is you need the science, you need the evidence in order to understand the risk and therefore make good decisions. And in this case, science and evidence is really all about testing data and and the need to have the adequate an adequate number of data points with a lot of testing and that's what the countries that acted quickly and and really were able to solve covid quickly did they did huge amounts of testing and for some reason there's a reluctance and even even with our the premier in ontario you know being very clear about the need for testing there still seems to be this strange reluctance and i don't know if it's i i don't actually know what's behind that it's interesting because, of course, different places in the country are different. This is a federation and a fairly decentralized federation, and sometimes that's good and sometimes maybe it's not as good. You know, the premier in Alberta has been talking about how they're way, way ahead of the rest of the country in testing, and that's because they've had a bit of a different approach uh, in their health procurement and in other elements, which maybe uh, other provinces will learn from over time. So I wonder, though, that the, you know, I've read that same uh, article that you referred to in the Globe and Mail, and it 
you know, frustrating to see that a report that comes out in the mid 2000s, that 15 years later, it's perhaps forgot, forgotten or, or ignored, although there's been a lot of reminders <laughs> along the way that uh, the officials should have paid attention to. So I wonder how much of that is overload in the system. I wonder how much of that is just the yeah. normal human failings and frailties, which, you know, we don't want to be tolerant of at times when people's lives are at risk, but are always a factor, aren't they? Isn't that the independent variable uh, really between, you know, that breaks up the transmission line? Yeah, I think very much so. I think it is human nature to focus on what is immediate for us, right? Like humans' brains are not wired to imagine catastrophe in 15 years or imagine the climate warming in 30 years. Human brains are wired to make sure that you have your next meal and that you're not cold and wet. So I think there is a fundamental human wiring challenge that we're always up against. Given that, A, we know humans are very, very poor at long-term thinking, and given that we also know that things like COVID are inevitable, then you would think that we would want to basically put something in place to help overcome our human inability to do this and actually have stuff ready, be prepared, have a plan, have something, have even, I was just imagining again reading that article, if somewhere there was a checklist that said, this is going to happen in this way, which a kind of pandemic planning document appeared to lay out, then there should have been something that said, so do this quickly, act now, figure out where the masks are coming from. If, if we kind of knew at the beginning of the year that we were going to need masks, and now it seems like three months into it, we're trying to figure out how to order them or manufacture them. Something there isn't working. Let me think of something I read in a book a couple of years ago, a book on dissent by William Kaplan, and he talks about the Arab-Israeli, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and how all the signs that a war was going to happen, an attack was going to happen, were there. But the group think just wouldn't let it through. And after the commission of inquiry after the war, what the Israelis decided was to create essentially a devil's advocate in the national security decision-making process whose job was to whatever people were saying, arguing the worst case scenario so you'd be prepared for the worst case scenario and never relenting. And maybe we need some kind of form of that. Yeah, again, in this case, I think what happens is in policy decision-making and government decision-making generally is there are systems and machineries that go on you know, the, the sausage making of government policy that people rarely see that seem to naturally create delay and they create indecision and they create second guessing. And so, again, going back to the COVID example, you know, we were hearing pretty clearly from health experts in Canada and based largely on the evidence of what was going on in the countries that did act quickly, that things were happening too slowly in Canada. But still, even the article I wrote almost two weeks ago now, it still feels like everything's unfolding too slowly. Just this odd one to two week delay pattern in all of the critical decisions that need to be made. I wonder what to what extent, and I imagine that we would have passed this point already, but I wonder how far in politics and policymaking as a part of politics how far out of front of public opinion you can get. So you're trying to shape public opinion. You know, we are talking of a one-week delay in mercury poisoning. I think you would be a supremely satisfied man. <laughs> but when we talk about one-week pandemic, we're we're in a very different order of uh, order of magnitude and order of harm. Yeah. But I do wonder if we had said at the beginning of March or the end of April, social distance, go lock yourselves in your home, whether there would have been an ability to gain the consent of the governed, whereas certainly two 
or three weeks later, you could. So is there a space that you need to create there? Yeah, there is. And I think that's an excellent point. I think it's back in part to our more complicated federation, where not only are we trying to judge where the individual citizens of Canada are at, we're also always working with where are the provinces at, and then where is the federal government at, and where are the people at. But I think this is a case of where I think people were looking for more direction. Casual conversations that I was having with my family and my colleagues were largely, why aren't we doing this now? Why is the government waiting? So my anecdotal sense, listening to colleagues and family, and what I was reading from medical experts suggested that the government moved behind, quite like in this case, significantly behind might be three to 10 days behind, but still behind in in a way that could be creating problems than it needed to behind public opinion. It's interesting because in your article, you've lived in a very scientific evidence type of milieu, operated in that milieu for many years. I've operated in more of a public policy, political milieu. And so people like me, let's say elected officials would be similar, are relying on that evidence in order to make their decisions. But you talk about the dissonance that they experience when they get different advice from different places. And I guess that's inevitable because science is not really an objective fact. It has to be interpreted. So has that caused delays? No, definitely. Maybe it's similar to your example of questioning the decisions of government built in, for example, from Israel. I think one of the challenges we have, this is my own bias as someone with a science degree, is that very few elected officials have degrees in science. Very few senior people that are making the the kinds of decisions that we're anticipating have science degrees. So, you know, I think there is a different way, and maybe this might be a little bit, you know, unreasonable to suggest, but I think that people who work in science and have scientific brains probably aren't the best ones to decide certain kinds of policies for Canada. But when it comes to a global health pandemic that is killing tens of thousands of people, you might want to listen to the scientists a little more this time than maybe on some other public policy matter. So, but again, that's, you know, maybe that's a little bit of my bias. Because I would say if you did, you know, we don't have the time for this kind of thing, but if you did a survey of the medical profession in Canada, you would have probably found a pretty strong consensus around the need to act quickly in this case. And I would say another another thing that I've been in my research that over the years has been great frustration is this idea that, you know, when you talk about dissonance in the system, you may have in whether it's something like climate change or mercury poisoning or asbestos or tobacco is another good example. You can have ninety-nine percent of every scientist in the world saying this is causing this or this is likely to cause this. And then you can have one percent saying, Oh well, you know, our study shows the opposite. And so if you're a decision maker, you shouldn't be going, hmm, okay, I'll weigh that one percent versus the ninety-nine percent. You ignore the one percent and you move. And the question then is, do you move at 99, 95, 90, 80, 70? Like, where is it that suddenly there's enough dissonance in the system to really cause you to rethink your decisions? But certainly, once you get up in the 90% range, you shouldn't be second-guessing things. So I guess that would take us to climate change, wouldn't it? And the scientific consensus. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the the big classic example now, yeah. I guess we have to uh, think that the 1% is actually 99% not Galileo. 
the 99% is going to be right more often than the 1%. That's a good point. Although I don't think Galileo was up against scientists. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So let's switch gears a bit and just talk about uh, what's happening in the environmental movement and how you think people will come out of this and how power and urgency will shift. Right now, we have people obviously tremendously preoccupied about the economy, about their jobs, about restoring growth. Very understandably, these are always major issues, but now there are even more major issues. Do you think that will slow down the environmental movement? Yeah, I think almost certainly we are going to see in the near term a sort of a retraction of a number of the things that are meant to support the environment. And it's, it's funny because there's been this history of in the early 1990s, we were on this new wave of environment and everyone was getting all excited. And then the recession hit in 92 and then suddenly environment got taken off the agenda. The same thing up in the mid 2000s and then the financial crisis. You know, we always talk about an environmental policy that environmental policy happens when everyone's pretty happy and the economy is doing well. So we'll likely see, I think, some challenges going forward. And certainly the way I look at it, there's several different pieces that we need to be looking at going forward. We, we certainly want to make sure that there is a level of maintenance of economic activity that just keeps the economy running to the extent that it can. So that means supporting and stimulus packages for you know, a lot of the existing economic activity that's going on. I think on the environmental side and energy, energy system side, there's two things really to be thinking about in addition to that. One is how do we make sure that we continue to make the economy as efficient as possible? Because efficiency is always a good thing. And I think even in times of crisis, we can be thinking about how to do things more efficiently. So I'm confident that we're going to see a ramping up of things like building retrofits and efficiency programs that will get people working, that will make buildings more efficient and save people money and make the buildings healthier. All of those are really good things. And then there's how do we use this as an opportunity to start really pivoting on the kind of the retooling of Canada's energy systems. And that's where there's right now a lot of tension. Of course, we're, we've got the double whammy of the oil price sort of falling through the floor while having COVID. So that's that's creating a lot of additional stress on the Canadian economy. And so we, we of course need to make sure that we're doing the best we can to be supporting some of the existing workers in that industry, but we can't take our eye off the ball of the fundamental fact that the oil and gas sector will be declining and is declining over time. And, and we really need to be looking at diversifying the Canadian economy. And so how do we do this in a careful way that, as you started out initially saying, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So we need to have a, an economy that's transitioning. We have to have an existing vibrant economy. But we can't, this can't be an excuse to basically say, okay, we can no longer support these environmental objectives or climate objectives, or used to hear things that, you know, people say, well, you know, climate change is like a luxury, you know, or fighting climate change is a luxury. Like it's, it's not a luxury anymore. And so we, uh, we actually really need to make sure that we're continuing to achieve our objectives, that we continue to have the kinds of policies in place that will help the country in the long term 
you know, recover. In the last several years, you've had the opportunity to interact quite a bit with uh, energy industry leaders in Calgary, particularly, and, uh, you know, in other sectors as well, but in the oil and gas sector. And I think you've had a good audience with them. And uh, I believe you think that they've been hearing this message and beginning to move. Have, have you got a sense that they're going to take their foot off the pedal? I think for the most part, I don't think they can. I think, unfortunately, I think they're, they really are in very serious crisis mode right now with the combination of the drop in demand, and the increase in supply and the drop in prices, etc. So I think they'll be scrambling a little bit more just to keep a basic functioning business for many of them for the next few years. I think it might accelerate. If you imagine that in 20 years, we are using less oil and gas globally. And if you also imagine in 20 years, it'll be suppliers that produce it at a lower cost than Canada, then it makes sense that Canada's piece of the global pie will be shrinking. And that means that we'll be losing some businesses in Canada. So this might accelerate the loss of some of the businesses that we have right now that are producing and exporting oil and gas. But I think for the ones that see themselves in it for the long term, there's no way that they can't be also thinking about how do they maintain themselves beyond COVID and into the the future, which will be a more carbon constrained economy. Bruce, you're clearly headed to long term thinking and seeing this energy transition in terms of it occurring over a period of decades. And I think accelerating and gathering steam as it goes. But generally, would you say in the environmental movement, there's that kind of patience for that change or that kind of empathy for, you know, for the plight of Alberta now? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's the other thing, right? It's not like energy and Alberta are the only two that go together. Of course, there's lots of different kinds of energy and all across the country. I mean, my concern is when there is this kind of dichotomy, which we often see, which is now just, you know, in some cases, maybe some doubling down, which is environmentalists on the one hand saying that we can't bail out the oil industry and lobbyists from the oil industry saying, well, we can't have a carbon tax anymore. So it's neither of those, I think, make good sense. I would say that the oil and gas industry should not be bailed out without a strong sense of how that is going to be happening while meeting climate objectives. And, you know, we're doing a lot of work on electrification of the economy and clean electricity, where Canada has a real advantage. We're doing a lot of work on hydrogen in Alberta. I think that there really, this needs to be seen as a an integrated package of sort of maintaining some of the things that we have, doing some rethinking, doing some retooling, and really making sure that whatever kind of bailout isn't isn't like a six-month or 12-month bailout, but it's really an opportunity to put money into the system to start pivoting to where we need to get to. Well, I guess that takes us um, full circle in the sense of, you know, will the recovery packages, the rebuilding packages, the reigniting the economy packages be short-term oriented, or will they be an investment and particularly uh, in infrastructure and other elements in a longer-term economy and a longer-term transition? Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see both. And I'm sure the government is, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, they would just be under tremendous, tremendous pressure to do as much as they can in the short term. And and again, you know, exactly taking us back full circle, short term thinking usually wins out. And so I just hope that it's done in a way that is very helpful in the short term, but 
not just embedding things in the economy in the short term that will undermine the ability of the economy to be more successful in the long term. So things like infrastructure for electrification, investments in efficiency and building retrofits. It's a it's a great opportunity to really be talking to Alberta, not just Alberta, but across the country, you know, Newfoundland, a good point, around how do we start transitioning to a different kind of cleaner energy system and and I would put hydrogen very much on the table in that one. Well, I guess today has never mattered more than it does uh, today because of the galloping infection that we uh, and pandemic with which we're dealing. But this is uh, the podcast that is about getting beyond just today and thinking medium term and and thinking long term, even in the context of the crisis we're going through. So you've come to the right place to have this conversation. And I want to thank you for uh, sharing those insights with us today. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure, Ed. Always, uh, always a pleasure to be chatting with you and chatting about public policy. Excellent. Pleasure for me too. That's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum, and I want to thank our distribution partner, National Newswatch. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.